Today on Peace Talks Radio, we consider loneliness. Some say loneliness can be lethal. If people are chronically lonely over a period of three to five years, these are the people who are going to see faster rates of blood pressure increase over that interval. When is a loner a danger to themselves and others? And when is a loner just someone who wants to spend time alone? We should be cautious about demonizing people who live alone or thinking that, oh, you poor thing, your life is going to be nasty, brutish, and short because they've chosen this. What can parents, teachers, friends, or relatives do for a lonely loved one? Children need scaffolding. They need allies in the adult world who are going to help them. And when and how to get help for the hardest part of loneliness. Maybe it's worth trying. How do you know if you don't give it a try? And clearly, not doing anything is not working for you because you're suffering too much. All today on Peace Talks Radio. This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm Paul Ingalls. This week's show about loneliness started with the question, is it just our imagination or is almost every mass shooter suspect described as a loner? Certainly it's been a characteristic used to describe the Virginia Tech shooter, the Sandy Hook shooter, the movie house shooter, the Santa Barbara shooter, and other perpetrators of mass violence in the fairly recent past. One Psychology Today headline questioned, Mass Shooters, Are They Loners by Choice? And the article stated, We must understand the thinking behind their being loners. But then the article really didn't go too far into that understanding. Then my hunt led to research about loneliness and how those who retreat deeply into it can begin to suffer physical and emotional risks of their own, which, statistically rarely but still sometimes, can trigger backlash behavior against society. Researcher John Cassiopo has a popular TED Talk called The Lethality of Loneliness. We talked with Cassiopo's co-author on a number of loneliness studies, Dr. Louise Hockley, an ORC researcher at the University of Chicago. Well, loneliness in and of itself isn't a bad thing. I'm sure most, if not all, people have felt it at some point in time. And we think of that as being an adaptive response. Loneliness is has persisted through time, we theorize, because it serves to motivate people to connect with others. That's a really important part of our human existence, to be connected to others. If we lack that sense of connection, especially over a long period of time, if we're unable to break out of it, it can have some pretty long-lasting negative effects and immediate effects, um, both psychologically and physiologically. People who are lonely are clearly more likely to be depressed They are prone to uh, social anxiety or hostility in some cases as a reaction to feeling excluded in particular. There could be some aggressive motivation. Physiologically, there are a number of long-term effects um, on blood pressure, for instance. We found that in older adults, if people are chronically lonely, over a period of three to five years, these are the people who are going to see faster rates of blood pressure increase over that interval. Also see changes in one's sleep. Sleep quality seems to be affected. Sleep doesn't have the salubrious effect in a lonely person that it might in a non-lonely person. Um, There are effects on stress hormones. There are effects on gene expression, a very fundamental level of Uh, physiology. What seems to be happening to the brain of uh, someone who lingers in a state of loneliness? 
My research has to do with the psychological, emotional effects that derive from the brain. So if you're asking about the brain per se, I don't specialize in that area. I can say that work that John Cassiopo has done has looked at using something called functional magnetic resonance imaging, looked at brain activity or blood activity in different parts of the brain in response to social or non-social visual stimuli, for example, images of babies versus images of people in pain versus images of objects that are repulsive in some other way. And there are some systematic differences in how the brain responds to those kinds of stimuli if a person is lonely. For example, they are much more likely to pay attention to and show activation to socially negative stimuli relative to the non-lonely person. It's as though people who are lonely at the same time as they want to connect are seeing the world in a way that makes it seem less safe, less uh, inviting, more something they have to defend themselves against. Right. Sort of developing what in media studies I'd learned to be called the scary world syndrome. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> developing a little bit more in folks who are socially isolated. Is that kind of a fair summary of that? Yeah, I think so. I I think empathy requires that you get out of your own concerns and be into somebody else's concerns. And a lonely person is very much caught up in protecting themselves. If you think of how we're wired as a human species from time immemorial, as far as we know, we are connected in utero from the moment we're born throughout life. We need that to survive. You can imagine why that would be so traumatic, if you want to call it that, so dramatic an effect for a human being to feel that the world is not a safe place. There is nobody around them that they can count on. Okay, what Dr. Hockley told me about this defensive, even paranoid state of some experiencing loneliness seems to line up with violent loner profiles. Now, it didn't seem to matter whom I was talking with about working on this loneliness show. Everyone seemed to say, Well, you aren't going to suggest that everyone who spends time alone is at risk of snapping into violence, are you? Dr. Hockley actually says, no, of course not to that. But UC Santa Barbara visiting professor Dr. Bella DePaulo really wanted to take that one on. Thanks for having me. She wrote a Psychology Today column entitled The Happy Loner that begins, loners get a bad rap. Loner is the label we affix to criminals, outcasts, and just about everyone else we find scary or unsettling. Then you quote author Annalie Rufus, who wrote a different take, that uh, a loner is, quote, someone who prefers to be alone, Mm -hmm. which you say is different from those who remain on the outside feeling isolated but desperately want to be on the inside. So help me understand the distinction. It sounds to me like you accept the more troubling definition of loner, but just want to make room for loner 2.0 or loner B. (laughs) who just prefers to be alone. Is that fair? Yes, I think that. Well, Annalie Rufus says that a loner is someone who prefers to be alone. So that's her central basic definition. And she thinks that when we call these serial killers uh, loners and we affix that kind of dark, menacing meaning to loner, we're distorting the true meaning of loner. But let me say that 
whether being alone, living alone, is a good or bad thing depends on how you got there. So if you got there because you want it and you love it and you crave it, that's great. But And if you got there because, um, let's say, a spouse died, that's more difficult. Although some people find that once a spouse dies, they come into their own, in their own space and time. But the real problematic person living alone is the one who has been rejected, who has been ostracized, particularly if they've been chronically ostracized. I think that can be an ingredient to real deep anger and the potential for violence. Let's say you're loner B in our little construct here. You prefer to be alone. Mm-hmm. Uh, is it valuable to be even concerned about the claims of researchers that they might be at risk of becoming loner A, like distrustful of society <laughs> or, or prone to feeling rejected? I mean, is it valuable to be uh, aware of your place on the continuum and have an awareness of this conversation? I suppose so. But you know what's really interesting? There's a whole cottage industry of loneliness. If you went on Google and typed loneliness, you'd probably get tens of thousands of of returns. And yet, the kind of research that would look at whether people have chosen to be alone or not is strikingly missing. So we really don't know if... The people who choose to be alone, who savor their solitude, who get great creative work done, get great restorative benefits, we don't know if they are prone to some of the same negative risks that we've heard about so often in the general literature on loneliness. So we just don't know. More with Dr. DePaulo later this hour. More with Dr. DePaulo online both in our hour-long program and our complete 40-minute chat with her, peacetalksradio.com. But back now to Dr. Louise Hawkley. I asked her about another reference made in Dr. Cassiopo's TED Talk and loneliness research that she's collaborated on at times. Now, the percentages of people living alone is steadily rising, particularly in the U.S. Um, percentage of one-person households in 1940 was less than 15 percent. It's steadily climbed to exceed more than 25 percent in the succeeding years. Prevalence of people self-reporting loneliness is on the rise. Uh, Dr. Cassiopo referenced the figure of 20 percent in 1980 and about 40 percent now. What do you and your colleagues in loneliness studies make of those numbers? What What's driving these trends, do you think? Right. Um there are studies more recently that sh- that kind of challenge the notion that loneliness is increasing, at least loneliness intensity. It may be becoming more prevalent in the sense that we have more people, um, especially in the older age group, who are susceptible to risk factors for being lonely, namely living alone, having poor health, and not being able to socialize for that reason. Um, not having a spouse, which is a big protective factor, especially later in life. And so the research more recently suggests, yeah, maybe it's not increasing per se. It's just that we have more people who are going to be experiencing some degree of loneliness. 
Or if it's becoming less stigmatized, people might be more likely to report it. And I want to make you know, one more reference to Dr. Cassiopo's TED Talk and his research. He equates blocked social connections with states of thirst, hunger, and pain, and that feelings of loneliness are similar warning signs. Mm-hmm. As he puts it, you know, threats to our social body. When we feel those other states, thirst, hunger, and pain, most seek drink, food, uh, treatment. But I think his point is, is that many experiencing loneliness do not respond in the same way they would to those other basic needs. Loneliness definitely is a motivational force like hunger or thirst. People may not pay attention to that. They may not recognize it as that. And what I think happens in older age is there's a norm that when you get older, you're going to feel lonely. It doesn't have to be that way, but the expectation that loneliness might be the norm leads people to ignore it or to um, just um, passively accept, tolerate, and live a less fulfilling life because they either believe that this is the way it's supposed to be or they have no energy to do anything about it, both of which are unfortunate given how much better life would be both uh, psychologically, emotionally, and in terms of health, if they would continue to live socially. I took a job in a big city one time and was living in a hotel for a while, you know, while I was looking for housing. And I can remember doing the job at work and then almost running to my hotel room, you know, to be by myself because the the, the big city felt very strange to me. And it's not necessarily a simple thing to just flip a switch and say, oh, I'm going to be social now. This is where I think if there is any uptick in loneliness, I think probably the way we live our lives in that we are very transient could work on that trigger. You never know whether a move to a new location is going to be just enough different, just enough of a loss of the original network, the family of origin, whatever close friends we might have had, to a new environment, whether that's going to tip the balance and and we find it difficult and we start inching over to this defensive posture where we're not entirely comfortable with our social circumstances, our social relationships, that makes us interact in a less open, disclosing way. We don't have as close a relationship then with the people we are around which leads us to more dissatisfaction, kind of reinforces our need to be defensive because it's not as safe a world as we thought it was. Then we move again and we go through this again. So people who have a sensitivity and then find themselves having to reestablish networks again and again may be at higher risk for the trigger going off and, and them devolving into more and more lonely states. Is where we might land on a tendency to lean toward loneliness more a case of nurture or nature, as they say? In other words, is it more learned behavior from environment, or is some of it inherited in brain chemistry? What's a thumbnail of what research has shown us about that? Yeah, nurture plays a role. We can learn how to be socially skilled. Social skills are a part of what it takes to be connected. And being in a a family of origin where those social skills are well-developed is certainly helpful, 
but it also gets reinforced through all of our interactions in the playground, at the workplace, at the school. Um, these are all opportunities to either uh, develop those social skills or have them atrophy. And it is a case of use it or lose it. The less opportunity you have to interact uh, to put those social skills to the test, the worse you get at it. And to the point where if you withdraw long enough and you don't interact with people, it becomes harder and harder to get engaged socially. You've mentioned this notion of uh, kind of recognizing whether you need two or three people or more people in your social circle. Uh, made me think of a Seinfeld episode where you know, somebody's trying to make a friend of Jerry, and, and Jerry says, "Look, you know, I only have three friends. I can't handle any more." You know, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. At least he has a definition of what his social circle needs to be <laughs> yes. to, to, to not uh, feel lonely. Three, three, three. That's yes. it. That's all I can handle. <laughs> Dr. Louise Hawkley, NORC researcher at the University of Chicago, and you can hear more from her later this hour. Dr. Hockley mentioned learning social skills as a child as an important step to protecting oneself from whatever negative effects loneliness might bring later in life. Next, we'll hear from someone who has studied that even more when Peace Talks Radio continues right after this break. This program is produced by a nonprofit media organization. The program exists only because people like you take a little bit of time and money to send a tax deductible contribution to the nonprofit media organization, Good Radio Shows Incorporated, to ensure that Peace Talks Radio continues online and on the air. Some foundation support has recently expired, so we really are counting on people who use the program, listen to the program like you are right now, to make even small tax-deductible contributions to Good Radio Shows Incorporated in support of Peace Talks Radio. So head over to peacetalksradio.com, click on the Donate button, and help us out if you can. This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. You can hear all the episodes in our award-winning series going back to 2002 online at peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. I'm Paul Ingalls, and loneliness is our topic this time on the show. We had a number of conversations with folks who have studied what's happening when loneliness develops how it can devolve into antisocial behavior, or more important still, how it can upset personal peace and lead to an aching depression, physical challenges, and a compromised hope for a longer life. Later, our guests also reflect on how an individual can get help and how those close to a lonely loved one can offer support. And one of our guests wants to make sure we don't stigmatize all people who choose freely to live alone at no risk to themselves or others. But as we tend to do with any conflict scenario on our series, we want to learn how a problem might develop early on our life paths. Seems like the best way to reduce a conflict in our collective future is if we understand how better to address the issue when raising our children. Dr. Stephen Asher is professor of psychology at Duke University and has studied loneliness in children, teenagers, and young adults. Uh, for a long time, people really didn't study loneliness in young children. I think there was a kind of an assumption that perhaps they wouldn't be uh, aware of this as an emotion or perhaps would not be able to articulate um, 
their understandings about loneliness. Uh, a number of years ago, uh, Jude Cassidy, who's a professor at the University of Maryland, um, Jude and I did a study where we interviewed children about uh, loneliness, children uh, who were in kindergarten and first grade. And uh, a surprising percentage of children, um, actually about 86% or so of the children, uh, uh, had, a, had a, a basic understanding of loneliness. They understood that it, it, it typically might involve, at least for young children, a, a kind of state of uh, being alone without others. But most important, they understood that it, it involved feelings of sadness. Where do you suppose they picked that up from? <laughs> That's a really great question. I think, though, that connection that you suggested, though, that loneliness is connected to sadness is kind of a key component that gives it weight as we carry it on through life. Is that the way we think about loneliness, or is it the, the way that we pass it down, or the way that it's represented in movies and media? I think these are really good issues. We we didn't study, and we haven't yet studied, really, the the, the kind of emergence of understanding of this construct. Um, uh, and I think that all, all of those sources are relevant, uh, including Sesame Street, including Mr. Rogers, who, who certainly was a, a, a wonderful television influence on children's lives, particularly in terms of them thinking about relationships and thinking about feelings, their feelings, how other people are feeling. You know, John Gottman and others have, have written about emotional coaching, the kind of emotion coaching that parents do. But it's also done in some of the better uh, educational television shows for children. So much of early childhood development seems to be about parents trying to get their kids at ease with being alone, at least for some stretches of time. Uh, isn't that a consistent and sort of important pattern that parents take their kids through? Absolutely. And, and children, as they get older, come to increasingly understand that loneliness is not the same thing as aloneness. Um, one of the questions that Jude Cassidy and I asked children in that study uh, a number of years ago was uh, whether a child could be with others and still be lonely, uh, which is kind of the flip side of this. You know, your, your point is, yes, you grow up to understand that you can be a alone and not lonely. We asked children the flip side of this. Could you be with others and still be lonely? And actually, only about 11% of kindergarten, first grade children understood this. Um, they, I guess you could say they're not, they're not existentialists yet. They don't realize you could be lonely in a crowd. You know, they tend to think, by and large, that if you're with other kids, life, life is good and you're not likely to feel lonely. Um, but of course, we know that is also not true. The, there are many children who are lonely um, and actually, you know, they're with others in the room and let's say the classroom but things are not going well. They're not well accepted by peers. Even worse, they might be victimized by peers. And we know victimization is a, a powerful correlate of, of feelings of loneliness in school. And then there are children who actually are reasonably well accepted. They may even have a friend, but the quality of the friendship isn't very high. There's not a lot of emotional support or companionship in the friendship. The friend isn't a really reliable partner. Uh, so one of the things that Jeff Parker and I did in, in our work together was to look at these qualitative features of friendship and to look at whether or not certain features are predictive of feeling lonely, even if you happen to have a friend. In your research, you, you study what you call goals that uh, people pursue in friendship along the way. And as we're talking about preschoolers, what are studies showing are the motivations of uh, youngsters at that age. Sherry Oden and I, in one of the first studies we ever did on 
peer relationships, worked with a group of children in a study. And the children we selected were the kids who were the least well-liked children in their classrooms. We developed an intervention in which we basically coached children in social relationship skills. But they were very simple concepts, really, Paul, things like the importance of cooperating or participating or you know, communicating with the other child and, and being sort of friendly and supportive of the other child. And the work took place in the context of a game. Um, and the children were told to try out these ideas that we would talk to them afterwards about whether these ideas help make games fun to play. And we found that in a school, third, fourth grade, in a number of schools we went to, that children who received this kind of intervention, this kind of social skills coaching, if you will, made substantial gains in terms of how well-liked they were by peers. And these gains were maintained when we followed them up a year later. We were really struck by this, just kind of amazed, actually, because we had, of course, hoped that we would be helping children with this intervention, but we didn't expect it to have this kind of lasting effect a year later. So if you, if you think about game situations, there's a lot of motives kids could have. You might, of course, want to really just get better at the game, or you might want to show off how terrific you are at the game. Or you might have what you might call an avoidance goal. You just don't want to fail. You don't want to look bad. You don't want to look stupid or clumsy or like you don't know what you're doing. You're, you know, kind of what you might call a Woody Allen goal of just a, let's get through the situation without anything terrible happening, you know? You could also have the goal of maintaining a good relationship with the person you're playing with, having fun with the other person and that person having fun. So we got to thinking about, is it possible that the reason this intervention was so successful is it possible that it's not just because we were teaching kids new concepts, but perhaps we were actually having impact on how they thought about the game and what the purpose of the game was, what was the kind of goals of the game context? Well, gosh, as you were describing it, you know, it kind of blowing my mind because it's a metaphor for going through life when you think about it. If you are approaching life as a game that you you know want to do well in that you don't want to look awkward in that you want to you know succeed in more often than not you know this is something that seems like a pretty easy plug in for youngsters but then it also feels like that for better or worse a lot of us carry it uh, along with us as we go oh absolutely and and i think families I mean, families do so many things that have an impact on their children's friendships. I mean, we could talk about this for, for hours, actually. But I think game playing with kids is a wonderful context for children to develop relationship skills and for them to, to implicitly, if not explicitly, think about what the goals are here, you know? So even when you play a board game with a child, there's all these issues that come up in game situations of how do you decide about the rules and negotiating fairness and making sure that everybody is getting a chance to participate and, and coping with losing. I mean, you don't want to be the kid who is losing and just kind of quits or, or tips the board over and destroys the game for everybody, you know, being kind of a bad sport. I think it's also pretty clear that we really don't spend very much time on how to cope with losing. 
Because, I mean, when you talked about tipping the board over, I think about these sociopathic behaviors that was initiating this conversation to begin with when someone who is maybe in their 20s or 30s just basically wants to tip the board over because they've never been able to cope with what it means to lose in social life or whatever. Well, when we think back to our elementary and middle school years, I think we can all think of a few kids who seem to not have any friends, and it sounds like your study has looked at this a bit. And that's probably when someone will start using this term loner. Well, that kid's a real loner, or he's just a loner. You know, that's the way Bobby is. Uh, what do we know about what might be happening in that youngster's world? The child who, who is called a loner, the child who seems to have no friends and be that by themselves, we don't know necessarily what that child knows and doesn't know about how you handle a wide variety of situations. But if you either go about systematically observing kids in different situations or you interview kids using what psychologists call hypothetical situations where you describe a situation and you ask the child, well, what would you do in this situation? What you often find is that children will exhibit behaviors that are clearly going to get them in trouble with their peers. Probably at the top of the list is aggression, physical aggression, verbal aggression, what Nikki Crick referred to in her work as relational aggression, you know, the mean girls or mean boys kind of, kind of phenomena. The, this range of aggressive behavior is, is by and large for children uh, the kiss of death with regard to ha being being liked and and trusted and accepted, you know, by other children. But underlying those aggressive behaviors is often what you might think of as certain kinds of social skill deficits, not knowing how to deal with conflict, not knowing how to cope when somebody teases you. Maybe they don't even mean anything by it other than just being playful, you know. Uh, one of my colleagues at Duke University has done wonderful work on how uh, children who are aggressive often uh, overread hostile intent in others, even when they're not meaning to be uh, hurtful. Maybe it was an accident that they bumped into you on the lunch line and you, you know, spilled your milk all over yourself. You know, so the ability to read cues, to understand what you do in different situations, is really very, very important, and and underlies the surface uh, impression you have of somebody as as a loner. Well, and as to what to do about it, uh, it seems like there's two schools of thought or maybe a combination of these schools of thought for parents. It's like, oh, they're out in the playground. They're going to figure it out for themselves. Or there's the added arena where parents will evaluate and ask questions about you know, the day at school and try to get into that world so that they can be the sounding board for those situations. I think that's right. And I, I think it's hard for parents to know when and how much to talk with kids about these things. You know, you don't want to be overly intrusive. You do want children to be able to deal with their own challenges in their life and, and not to just feel helpless that they can't do anything on their own. You know, it's a really balancing act for the adults, you know, in terms of how much do I do here. But for children who are clearly hurting, I don't think the best response is to say, well, they'll figure it out. More of our interview with Dr. Stephen Asher later this hour. Children, adolescents, or adults struggling with loneliness can get help from licensed therapists, like Robert Thompson, who works in Albuquerque, New Mexico. 
I think loneliness is a human condition, and I think everybody experiences it from time to time. I was thinking about, you know, where does it begin? And I think there's this field of study that is called attachment. And early in our life, if we have adequate uh, consideration from the people around us, we kind of grow up with that sense of the world is really kind of an okay place to be. If that doesn't happen enough, people can begin to feel like there's something either wrong with them or there's something wrong with the world or both. So when people present talking about feeling lonely, it's often a, a sense of being disconnected from others. Um, I think loneliness is kind of uh, a signaling device that we as human beings have that indicate to us we should become more uh, interested in how we're connected to others because we're a social being. We need to be connected with others. So uh, when I see people that are disconnected, they're suffering. When you sit down with a patient who is exhibiting and maybe even just using plainly the language of loneliness, that I'm lonely, uh, I don't have uh, people that I can confide in. Try to paint a picture about maybe a composite character or someone who that has been dealing with these sort of things and where you take them to get them to a place where loneliness doesn't feel like it's such a weight on the heart. Yeah, so uh, a person who comes in presenting with loneliness as the concern, as the source of the pain, probably doesn't think about how did things get to be that way. And we know that loneliness is a human possibility. Everybody has the capacity to be lonely. Uh, but if from our childhood we are lucky enough to have a good enough a nurturing environment, uh, we become solid on the inside uh, because we feel valuable and worthwhile and that gives us the energy to go out and connect with other people because we're a social being. Uh, if that doesn't happen quite enough, we might wind up, because of the egocentric nature of a child who's trying to fix something that doesn't feel right uh, and cannot fix it, we can't fix the other, we can't fix many things in life, uh, but we could begin to think that there was something wrong with us uh, and feel bad about ourselves, and work really hard to try to change that, thinking, well, if I just work harder, I'll fix whatever's not right in my early childhood. And of course, the harder we work, the more disappointed we are because we can't fix it. We can only fix what's on the inside. And we don't know that until uh, somebody really explains that to us, and that's kind of what therapy is about. It's uh, going back and looking at the early issues that happened that caused things to be the way that they are so that it becomes a conscious, uh, aware process in the person's mind. Uh, I understand how I came to feel the way that I feel. I can see the things that led in that direction, and now I have some idea about what's causing it. Once we understand the nature of how things got to be, it frees us up to do what we need to do so that we're more connected. Mm -hmm. For people who seem good at revealing to another in a trustful way, either in therapy or outside of therapy, what might have gone right for them in their upbringing uh, that allowed them to, to have these skills? 
Yeah, so generally I think when the attachment is happening well, when the connection between two people, usually a, a child and a parent, hopefully a mother or father, and that's going well, uh, the person who uh, is the adult is sending messages to the child that says, I understand you, I get you, I know how it feels inside of you. And the child experiences that. They feel known, they feel understood, and they feel therefore very connected. And when they grow up then, they have a sense of people can connect with each other. If you don't have that as a child, um, we know we, we hear about uh, people dismissing other people's feelings. An example that comes to mind is, and you've probably seen this, a child falls down in the street and tears up their knee or their hand or something and they begin to cry. And the adult walks up and says, oh, it's not that bad, just kind of shake it off. That's a good example of being dismissed, of not being understood, of not being uh, really connected with. The parent who walks up and says, oh my God, that's got to hurt so terribly bad. Oh, look at that blood. Oh, this is awful. Let's go fix it. That child knows that they've been understood. And therefore, you grow up with that and you have that sense of people can understand me because they've been understood. So parents investing some time in engaging with their children in that way might be able to help uh, those youngsters as they grow to be better equipped to avoid what people might consider as the scourge or the dark side of loneliness. Absolutely. If we, if we feel connected with right from the very beginning, if every time we have a feeling or a thought and it's being noticed by the other person and it's being able, uh, that person is able to then put it into words. The child doesn't have a lot of words. They have all the feelings but not a lot of words. When somebody begins to put words to our feelings, then we begin to put words to our feelings and so we can do it much better all through our life. Um, you know, we know that this concept of, it's called mentalization, where we're able to think through something in our mind. We don't have to act on it. We can really think it through, and that gives us a much better chance later in life to do the right stuff. And a lot of times the parents, adults, are uh, called on to overcome what their instincts are or what they observed as children uh, when they start parenting or helping young people, because that's the first thing that comes up what is familiar to them from their attachment. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, we're going to do what we know. You know, any habit, just try to, try to change some habit that you have. And when you're consciously trying to change it, you'll see how difficult it is. And yet we can change those things. You know, when, when we uh, decide that something's important and we put effort and energy into it, we can change. But once you understand the nature of how things got to be, then it seems like you're at another place where you have to develop um, new behaviors, perhaps, mm -hmm. ways of thinking and doing that uh, might be hard to get to. Get a little bit more into the detail of the second step of helping someone along toward a, a, a new pattern of behavior that would break those cycles that they may have exhibited in their upbringing. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things that we know is really useful to anyone who's suffering is to be able to sit with another human being who's listening and attending and caring and talk about those things. Uh, Freud called therapy the talking cure. Yeah, people would say, well, you just sit down and talk about things. How can that be useful? 
Well, we find that it's incredibly useful because we're not alone anymore. Somebody's attending, somebody's listening, somebody's caring. And it's in that relationship where we begin to feel solid, where we begin to feel, I am okay, uh, I'm, I'm worthwhile. And once I know that about myself and I understand how I got to feel the other way, because now it's a conscious process, now I can take that knowledge and I can go out into the world and begin to practice trying new things in a different way. Just like any of us trying something new, we're not going to be very skilled at it at first. We're going to make a lot of errors. But if we don't give up and we keep trying, we get better and eventually we become very, very adept at doing it. Robert Thompson is a licensed therapist in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We'll hear more from him and from each of our other three guests in our final segment as we explore loneliness today on Peace Talks Radio. We continue after this break. If you like what you're hearing on this podcast, you can help support the series with a tax-deductible contribution to the nonprofit media organization that produces this program. We are our own nonprofit organization. And to protect this real estate, this media real estate, for talk about peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution, we absolutely need your help, your contributions. A couple of grants from some generous family foundations have recently expired, so we're depending on the support from our listeners, listeners like you, to keep this program going, both on air and in our podcast and online. Do your part to keep talk about peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution strategies out in the media by making a tax-deductible contribution today. You can find out how at peacetalksradio.com, then just click on the Donate button. They'll take you straight through the process. You're listening to the radio, online, and podcast series, Peace Talks Radio. You can get lots more on today's episode and all the episodes in our series dating back to 2002 by visiting us online at peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. Today we're learning more about how loneliness can lead to a collapse of personal peace and sometimes lead to a reduction in empathy for others, an increase in fear of others, and occasionally a lashing back at society in episodes of extreme violence, like we've seen so many times in mass shootings over the years. Before the break, we were talking with licensed therapist Robert Thompson, who practices in Albuquerque, New Mexico, talking about the steps people can take to get help. But he says those battling loneliness can sometimes be especially reluctant to take the therapy step. Generally speaking, the people who are able to overcome their worries, their fears of the world, of people, uh, are able to come in and do the work. They're able to come to therapy. It's generally speaking that people are too afraid or too terrorized, to, uh, they can't come. So if they don't have any place to develop these strategies and skills, they, they tend to kind of spiral away from humanity rather than towards it. And we know that as a person begins to feel that the world is an awful, terrible place, uh, they want to oftentimes uh, try to get rid of the terrible stuff in the world. It's why oftentimes people turn it back against themselves. If there's something so terrible about me, maybe I should just get rid of that terrible part of me, even if it's getting rid of, rid of the best part of me. So uh, I think what, what we want is for people to feel better about themselves, to understand the nature of how they got to suffer the way that they do, uh, to have some new ways to manage that suffering, and to begin to more successfully connect with other people so that they feel 
uh, more encompassed, uh, more held by the world. For people who are having trouble taking that first step towards seeking therapy, uh, help listeners overcome that obstacle. How might they set up a, a plan to find the best help for them? Well, I think the first step in that is making a decision one making their own decision that it's time to get some help. Everybody has a sense of pride and we all like to do things uh, on our own. We like to be able to solve our own problems. And so I think the first step is for somebody to say, this is an issue that I don't know how to solve and I'm going to consult with somebody who's an expert at this. If I have something happen with the transmission of my car, I'm not going to try to fix it myself. I'm going to take it to somebody who does that every day because the likelihood of a good outcome is going to be much better. So we don't have to reinvent the wheel, but we have to make the decision to go and seek help. The second part that you brought up is, you know, how does a person decide who's a good person to see, who's a good therapist? Well, each person is unique. The combination of putting two people together in terms of their own uniqueness we don't know exactly how that's going to work. So uh, my best friend can tell me, you know, I'm seeing so-and-so, and it's, it's just a wonderful experience. It doesn't mean that it'll be a wonderful experience with me because our personalities might not click. Um, there's been some research looking into that, and uh, if the person who's going to see a therapist doesn't in the first session really feel a sense of connectedness with that person, uh, a sense that, yeah, this, is a, uh, this, this seems like it might work, then it probably won't. So it's best to then try somebody different. In terms of who do we try, that's, a, that's an important question. It's how many, how many people are using their insurance and who are the people in their area that are on that panel of that, res of that uh, insurance company. Um, I think we have to just do a little hunting around. We can go on the web. The web, you can find, you know, you can type in uh, psychotherapists or psychologists in your area, and they'll give you a whole list of people. And so then we have to do some legwork and go and meet those people and experience what it's like to be with them. The next obstacle that would come up is after a couple of failed tries, someone just saying, this is exhausting. I don't want to keep going over this material starting from the beginning again with new people. Well, and I hear in that a sense of disappointment already. You know, I've tried two or three people, and it hasn't been a good connection with me. Which wouldn't be uncommon for someone who's battling loneliness, for example. It might not be. Uh, but if, if we come in to uh, a setting to meet with somebody, and already we have a sense that I'm going to be disappointed. When I was a child, every time I needed somebody to understand my feelings and they dismissed me, I'm going to expect that people are going to disappoint me. And so uh, if, we, if we come preloaded with that, uh, we, we have to be prepared to kind of look at our own stuff too. A person who's seen, uh, you know, three or four per people, three or four therapists and hasn't been able to find somebody that they can connect with, it may not be the therapist. It may be something that's happening within them that's resisting connecting. That's a riddle, though, because they actually have to break through that to get to a therapist to be able to start working on that. Exactly right. Usually it's, it's how much discomfort or pain is somebody in that motivates them to go and seek help. When, when it hurts enough, people say, okay, i got to do something about this. Mm -hmm. If it's kind of on the borderline between you know, intolerable and tolerable, oftentimes people hold off, which I think is too bad. Yeah, they'd have to suffer so much less if they just get started. And I think that's where uh, if, if a person has anybody in their life who's connected with them in any kind of substantial way 
who knows about this kind of work, they might say, well, of course you're going to feel discouraged. Of course you're not going to think it's going to work. But maybe it's worth trying. You know, how do you know if you don't give it a try? And clearly, not doing anything is not working for you because you're suffering too much. I'm guessing that you don't want the individual, the patient, to be having the therapist be the only place in the world. It's an important place, clearly, but to be the only place in the world is not necessarily a goal. Absolutely not the goal. The goal of, I think, any good therapy is independence, is that we have a, a core develop inside of us that makes us free to go out into the world and live. We're not dependent on a particular individual or setting to feel all right in the world because we carry that sense of solidity inside of us. The world's going to continue to put things in our direction that are some are going to be helpful and some are going to be not so helpful. Uh, but if we're solid on the inside, we have ways to manage that. And when things knock us down, as it's inevitable that it will, we can get back up again. So uh, the goal is not to keep somebody in therapy. It's to teach them to get out of therapy so that they can go out and live their life. What's a couple of places to take someone who sits down in your office and says, I can't maintain a relationship. I'm just so lonely. I just want to be with someone. Where do you go from there? I think we start with, well, you're here with me. Let's see if we can have a relationship. Because if we can figure out what's getting in the way, if something's getting between us, then we can figure out what's getting between you and everybody else. If we can have a positive relationship, then you can have it not only here, but you can have it elsewhere as, as well. But you have to take it out there and make it happen. You know, and the way I think about it is that, yeah, there, there are difficulties in meeting a person who is a good match for you. But there's a whole world full of wonderful people. And if you are determined that you want to find that person, you will find it. I always think of Henry Ford's statement. He said, whether you say you can or you can't, you're right. So if we believe that we can't, then, of course, we can't. Albuquerque therapist Robert Thompson. Now, for a counterpoint for that patient who is forlorn about finding a mate, we'll return to Dr. Bella DePaulo, visiting professor at UC Santa Barbara, who's written the books Living Single, and how we live now. We should be cautious about demonizing people who live alone or thinking that, oh, you poor thing, you're gonna, your life is going to be nasty, brutish, and short because they've chosen this. Many people who live alone could find other people to live with, but that's not what they want to do. We mentioned, Dr. DePaulo, that you live in Santa Barbara, and not long after the 2014 mass shooting in Santa Barbara, oh yes, you wrote a piece that I found quite interesting. Now, that young man who killed himself after his murdering rampage had written mm -hmm. about his frustration with not being able to couple with women and have sex. Yes. Tell yes. us what that and other similar stories of violence fueled by that kind of frustration brought up for you that you wrote about. Yeah, I think it suggests a real dark side of all of this, what I call matrimania, the over-the-top hyping of weddings and couplings and marriage. We make such a big deal out of finding the one with the bachelor and the bachelorette TV shows and all the novels that build up to a wedding and all the TV shows that include multiple wedding series. And so we've 
kind of created this sense in the culture that you're nothing unless you have this other person in your life and that what makes you matter is having that other person and finding that other person and being celebrated for having that other person. And so if you're someone who doesn't, then that can feel shameful and it can provoke great resentment and even rage. Well, what could we do about that? Uh, Our program often takes an issue like you've described and then says, let's go upstream and see where those messages get planted and how can we offer something else and when do we do that along the way? What, What are your thoughts about that? I think we want to ask other people not just, oh, are you seeing anyone? That classic question, but tell me about your friends or tell me about how your school work is going or what are your passions, what are your interests, what have you found to do on campus, what is new and exciting, what have you learned about. I think we need to consider the whole person and their whole life and not just be focused on this very narrow slice, which is, oh, are you seeing anyone? And have you found the one? <laughs> which is so very limiting. Dr. Bella DePaulo, visiting professor at UC Santa Barbara, author of Living Single and How We Live Now, as well as a blog for Psychology Today. We have time for a few more words now from Dr. Louise Hockley, NORC researcher at the University of Chicago, whose own work specializes in exploring the landscape of loneliness among the elderly. There's also the the reality that even in old age, and uh, you know, I, th- I think of myself getting toward those years, thinking the childhood nature of social interactions, the dynamics of a playground, in some sense never stop because even in old age, there's research showing that people fear rejection. To start anew means they might not be included. They might be ostracized. They might not be included in whatever activity is going on. A recent uh, Times article spoke about uh, a woman taking her mother to a retirement home and her mother was complaining. Here's a group of elderly who she's now confined to live with. In a sense, she doesn't have a choice. These are her family. There's a group who want to play bridge. They're short a person. She plays bridge. She offers to play, and they shake her head. No, no, she's not good enough. They won't accept her as part of their bridge group, which is devastating to her. That is her opportunity to participate. I've seen retirement homes that remind me of the plot of the Mean Girls movie. I mean, it, I, I've, exactly. often, I've often said, I don't, I don't think we ever really graduate high school. But uh, Yeah, well, I was going to say kindergarten, but it's a similar <laughs> yeah, thing. No, you, your, your playground analogy is, is apt as well. And finally, more from Duke University's Dr. Stephen Asher, whose field of study about loneliness and behavior includes the child's playground setting, where all these behaviors start to take shape in us. You know, Paul, when you've uh, asked me to you know, kind of have a conversation with you about topics around loneliness and conflict. And I think one thing I I really wanted to say about loneliness in particular is, and and aggression and conflict and sort of joining those um, different factors together, 
is that we tend to think when we look at a kid who's aggressive, who tends to get into a lot of conflictual relationships with other children and, and is mean to other kids, it's, it's very easy to get captured by the surface behavior and to get angry at the kid, to want to sort of punish really. You know, we, we do this as a society. We punish, you know, aggressive behavior. One of the things that maybe we don't always fully appreciate is that same person who is very aggressive and mean-spirited can actually be lonely. We've done work when we've asked children in elementary school if they would like to get help if there was somebody in their building who helped them with, could be there to help them with peer relationship problems. And a remarkable percentage of children will either say yes or maybe, or maybe. You know, and then of course there's a lot of kids who also say, no, I don't feel I need that kind of help. help. When you look at who the children are who say they would like help, some of those kids fit what you'd expect. They're kids who are low in peer acceptance and are kind of more on the withdrawn side of things. But the children who are aggressive and disliked by peers, they also show a greater tendency than children who are better accepted to say they would like help. And I don't think we think that way when we see a child who's a real pain in the neck, you know? We don't tend to, to think, oh my gosh, underlying this behavior may be somebody actually who is feeling pretty badly about their, about their social life at school. So I think we do have a responsibility. Um, schools are there for multiple reasons, and they've always had multiple reasons. You know, the development of citizenship, the development of, of, of the ability to get along well with people, as well as, of course, academic engagement, to be, you know, getting good at, at the academic side of, of, of school. Schools have multiple missions. Parents have multiple missions um, as caretakers of their children. And we have, I think, responsibilities for other people's children. So yes, I think that this is something that people should pay attention to. It's a lot to expect children to take responsibility for their own growth in a way in this area. You know, it's about the adults in the community saying it's really our responsibility to provide a safe place for children. It's not the victim's responsibility to solve this problem on their own. For a long time, we had this view that, you know, stand up, you know, go out there, don't let them push you around, you know, stand up to that kid, right? But the truth of the matter is that's awfully hard. We don't even expect adults in the workplace to do that. We know that adults can take legal recourse if they're being harassed in the workplace, you know. Children need scaffolding. They need support. They need to have allies in the adult world who are going to help them, you know, cope with problems that they're facing. Dr. Stephen Asher who is professor of psychology at Duke University. Again, much more from him and all our other guests at peacetalksradio.com. You can order CDs from there, sign up for our podcast or a monthly newsletter, send us your feedback. And importantly, it's where you can also make a tax-deductible contribution or a vehicle donation to the nonprofit organization that produces this program, separate and apart from your public radio station. That's peacetalksradio.com. In addition to support from you, we also receive support from the McCune Charitable Foundation of New Mexico and KUNM at the University of New Mexico. I'm Paul Ingalls. Thanks for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio.